The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Most of the vaccine manufacturers are doing the whole spike protein in their vaccine. And the reason is, is that's the one that's very important in actually entering a cell to infect a cell. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to Annals on Call. This episode discusses an October 20th article titled COVID-19 Vaccine, What Physicians Need to Know. This is a summary and report of a vaccine form on COVID-19 that was hosted by the Annals of Internal Medicine and the American College of Physicians on October 16th. Uh, In the journal, there is a link to the entire form, which lasts about two hours. Joining me today is Dr. Paul Gepfert. Dr. Geffert is a full professor of both medicine and microbiology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He uh, has his research interests, T-cell immunology and vaccine design. He's been very involved in uh, vaccine design for HIV, but recently has been very involved with testing of vaccines for COVID-19. I think you're going to learn a lot about how the body responds to uh, uh, COVID-19, how we clear COVID-19, and the concept behind the vaccines for COVID-19. Thank you very much for listening. Paul, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. Most internists that I know are very enthusiastic to learn more about the vaccine, but really don't know as much about the possible vaccinations as they'd like. So I'm hoping that our conversation will shed some light and give people background prior to the studies coming out on vaccines. I thought it'd be worthwhile to start out with what's the immune response that our bodies have, and are we trying to reproduce that immune response? And my understanding is not just antibodies. So if you could explain that uh, a little bit, I think that'll inform when we start talking about how the vaccines might work. When somebody gets infected with COVID, the first thing that happens is sort of your first line of defense, which are what are termed innate immune responses. I mean, to get very basic, the skin would be your first line of defense, frankly, of the mucosal system. But once it breaches that, then you have the innate immune responses, which are things like neutrophils and macrophages and such. And they actually produce by themselves some very important factors. And for COVID, it seems like interferon, the interferons are, are very important, especially interferon beta. And it's interesting that there's some studies showing that, that people have inherent defects in interferon beta production, and they actually make it very sick with a COVID infection, as are those who have anti-interferon antibodies. So they are the first ones to respond, and their job is to mop up if they can, but uh, 
and and I think in many situations, likely people who have very mild disease or maybe even asymptomatic, they probably do a really good job of doing that. But beyond that, then they also bring in the adaptive immune response, and those are B cells and T cells. Um, and what they do is they generally will take the COVID virus, sometimes alive, sometimes already killed, into the lymph nodes. Uh, so let's say into your cervical lymph nodes in this case. And then they interact with the B cells and T cells, and then they uh, find ones that actually have inherent ability to recognize them. Uh, and then they, your body then starts producing B cells that are very specific for COVID. And these B cells go into plasma cells and they start making antibodies. And then antibodies then are, I think evolutionarily antibodies are made in order to protect against subsequent infections. So for most vaccines, that's what we think we want more than anything. However, there's also CD4 T cells, which are called helper cells. And the reason they're called helper cells is they orchestrate the immune response. And so they can help antibody production become more efficient. And we've actually benefited. That's, what, that's why the conjugate vaccines work so well, because they actually bring in uh, helper cells to help antibody or help B cells produce better antibodies. That's why conjugate vaccines work so well. And then we have the killer T cells, which are CD8 T cells. And those, I think most people will generally agree that those aren't really that important to protect against infection. However, they can be very important in um, controlling infection. And so the paradigm is generally that uh, CD4 T cells make good antibodies and your antibodies there and they can be long lasting. And those antibodies can actually protect against infection. Uh, if that uh, protection isn't complete protection, then, then CD8 T cells sort of mop up the infection. And so then historically, the best correlate of vaccine protection in the past for most clinically available vaccines is neutralizing antibody responses. And by that, I mean, but what neutralizing antibody means is all you have is the antibody and let's say the virus in this case, and you put them together in a test tube and it completely neutralizes it. And so that is sort of what we think is our best possible immune response. However, uh, historically, our best vaccines have been uh, live attenuated vaccines that induce all those arms of the immune system. And by all those arms, I mean the innate immune response, the adaptive immune response with B cells and T cells. However, we've gotten better at vaccines more recently and have been able to bypass some of these things. Um, and so a good example of that is the shingles vaccine, the new shingles vaccine, Shinrix, which is just a, a subunit glycoprotein with an adjuvant. The adjuvant induces the innate immune response. The glycoprotein induces really good antibody responses and CD4 responses. And it's actually better than the live attenuated old shingles vaccine for, for older adults. So anyway, that, I, that may be a lot that I said, but I think in a nutshell, that's sort of how our immune response works to uh, control infections. That's really helpful and helps me understand it quite a bit better. With that as a background, uh, there are three different strategies being used uh, and, are in, and being tested right now for vaccination. Could you go over each of those and what the, where we think we are with those vaccines? Yeah, so there's a couple uh, layers to that. So the first one is what immunogen do we use or what antigen do we use? What part of the virus do we use to vaccinate? Now, 
we haven't even talked about live attenuated um, and nobody's really done that. And that that's a possibility, but that takes a long time actually to do that. And we don't, as, as we know, we, we're sort of strapped for time right now. And so the, the second best thing is to use a protein that's exposed, that the virus has that's exposed to the surface. That way it can be amenable to neutralizing antibody responses. And there's two such candidates in SARS-CoV-2. The first is the E protein, but that has very few epitopes on there. And the second is the spike protein, which has two different parts to it. But uh, most of the vaccine manufacturers are doing the whole spike protein in their vaccine. And the reason is, is that's the one that's very important in actually entering a cell to get to infect the cell through the ACE2 receptor, the human ACE2 receptor. And so early on, they figured out, uh, and actually some of it was because it's a very similar type of virus to uh, RSV, a respiratory syncytial virus. They not only figured out that it was the S protein that could be important, that was their main target, but they also figured out the S protein is in different complexes and they wanted the pre-fusion complex, the one that actually binds to the ACE2 that may induce the best neutralizing antibody. And that was already known from work that was done at the, at the Vaccine Research Center, the NIH-sponsored Vaccine Research Center for RSV, and they just applied it to COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. Okay, so now that's a long-winded way of saying that all the majority of vaccines that are, and all of the vaccines that are being tested in phase three studies right now, in efficacy studies, are encoding the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. Okay, so then the question is, there. I think what you said is there's three different methods, and that's true, that are expressing this S protein. The first is the mRNA, M as in Nancy, messenger RNA way of doing it. And this is actually a very new way to express uh, vaccine antigens. Um, it's been tested preclinically and clinically for studies, but there's no clinical vaccine yet that's been approved by the FDA that uses this technology. The benefit of this technology is you can rapidly design and produce mRNA to make a vaccine. And that's why these were the first to come out. And this is the two that we know of are, at, are Moderna and Pfizer. Moderna has already now completely enrolled in their efficacy study. That's 30,000 individuals and they're awaiting now endpoints so they can determine whether it works or not. And Pfizer has enrolled 44,000, but their goal was to enroll 60,000, but they're already accruing endpoints. And so it's quite possible that in the next few weeks, they're gonna know if their vaccine works or not. So that's mRNA. The second easiest vaccine to produce is the adenovirus recombinant vaccine. So this is, as you know, adenovirus is a virus that is usually not too severe in humans, although it can be. But what these companies have done is they've taken it and they've attenuated the adenovirus so it cannot replicate. It can just go infect a cell and then produce a bunch of protein. So here you engineer the adenovirus to express the, the S protein, the spike protein of coronavirus. And then that then goes into a cell and then it expresses the spike protein. And then that's how you get your immunogenicity against that spike protein. There's actually, interestingly enough, there aren't any Except for one, there aren't any clinically approved vaccines that use the recombinant adenovirus technology, but this has been tested in huge amounts of studies for many years now. 
um, mainly for HIV, but um, also for Ebola. And the Janssen study that expresses the spike protein, it's an AD26, adenovirus serotype 26 type of backbone that's attenuated. They've also made it to express Ebola, and that actually is clinically approved to be a vaccine in the European Union. It's, it's been approved for a vaccine. So that's already approved. Okay, so those are your adenovirus recombinant, and that, those are companies of AstraZeneca and Janssen. And AstraZeneca is a chimpanzee-derived adenovirus that's also attenuated. Okay, and then finally, the third type of vaccine that you mentioned is our very traditional recombinant protein vaccine. This is like what hepatitis B vaccines are. Uh, so in this situation, you just take the protein, you put it in an expression vector, and you have cells that produce the protein. Then you purify this protein, and you take that protein, and then that's your vaccine. And in this case, um, both companies, which is Novavax and Sanofi, are using adjuvants, which adjuvants, again, stimulate the innate response to help boost the adaptive response. Uh, and so they give it with adjuvants. I should say that uh, AstraZeneca, as you know, and um, Janssen are both currently enrolling, but they have not finished enrolling uh, their studies yet. And then um, Novavax is, these recombinant proteins take the longest to make, which is why it's taken them so long. And Novavax will be the next recombinant protein to start efficacy studies. And that should be any day now. And then uh, Sanofi will uh, probably by December, January. So they're all trying to get the same thing to happen. That's exactly right. Thank you for bringing that up. So they're all trying to induce neutralizing antibody responses. So antibodies that you just take the virus in a test tube, you throw in the serum of somebody who's vaccinated and hopefully it neutralizes it. And in fact, um, most of these companies that are in phase three studies now have all published results from their phase one, two studies, first in human studies and safety studies that show that their vaccines induce neutralizing antibody responses. And most of them induce actually neutralizing antibody responses that are equivalent to or even better than what you see in natural infection, higher than. Is it important that they don't just produce neutralizing antibodies, but have B cells ready and T cells ready? I've read some things that say the neutralizing antibodies might wane over time, but if re-exposed and the B cells and T cells are ready, they could produce neutralizing antibodies quickly. Well, so that's right. So as you know, so let's talk about (laughs) antibodies, as you probably know, only have a half-life of um, a few months. And so I guess a half-life of a month. So if you have an immune, a severe uh, B cell deficiency, B cells make antibodies, you would get intravenous immune globulin and you get that every month. And the reason you do is because it wanes, it doesn't stick around forever. However, when you vaccinate, what you do is you produce what are called memory B cells, and those memory B cells then will stick around. And then let me back up. There's also plasma cells that will stick around and continue to produce antibodies for a long time as well. And then there's memory B cells, and and memory B cells um, then are there, but they still have to then get stimulated, expand, and then make antibodies. So that's not quite as good as having antibodies ready to go. And there are some vaccines actually that we have that make antibodies that last for years. Um, And it's not, so it's not really antibodies that are lasting for years. It's either B cells or plasma cells that are making these antibodies continuously or 
to a certain extent. Um, so the smallpox vaccine, for instance, uh, there's a great study that was done that, that tried to calculate the half-life of antibodies induced by the smallpox vaccine. They couldn't do it because it would last so long. And the same with the yellow fever vaccine. But for SARS, for COVID natural infection and other coronaviruses, the antibody responses tend to wane very quickly. And so I think that's why people think that we're going to need other types of immune responses that are better able to develop memory. And that includes B cells and T cells. But having said all that, you don't know any of this until you have something that works and then to see what the correlates of protection are. What is it going to take for the FDA to approve a vaccine? That's a good question. I, they've actually put out, I don't know if you listened to Kathy Musel's talk yesterday, but they've actually, uh, UAB had a, a COVID-19 symposium and she talked about vaccines. Uh, Kathy Musel is sort of the one of the co-heads of the vaccine treatment and evaluation unit NIH sponsored. And the FDA has actually put out sort of what they expect to be present in order for them to approve a vaccine. And on the top of the list is obviously to prevent COVID-19 infection. And so that's preventing symptomatic COVID-19. And so you have to be able to show efficacy and you have to be able to show, I think they've decided at least 50% efficacy for that to, for them to actually approve the vaccine. You know, then the question is, well, if all you're doing is preventing uh, COVID-19 infection, symptomatic infection in people that are under 50, let's say, is that enough? And I think a lot of people would argue that that would not be enough. You, what you need is people who are over 65 to prevent infection then because those are the ones who are dying. It's not really, I mean, obviously everybody can die with it, but those are the ones who predominantly die. Um, but I think right now they're, they'd be satisfied with just any kind of protection. And then you could actually apply for, for a licensed vaccine. It's interesting though, if, if they only show that it works in people under 50, then you can only approve it for people under 50. And so clearly companies like Pfizer and Moderna want to show that it's working in people over 60, 65 as well. And in fact, all of these companies have enrolled at least 25% or more of their population are in people over 65 in order to show that. But from what I just said, that usually means that most of the people are under 65 that are enrolling, and those are the ones you're going to get a, a read on efficacy first. But the problem is just because it works in somebody younger, that doesn't mean it's going to work in somebody older. And the, the perfect example of that is the, uh, the attenuated shingles vaccine that worked in people under 70, but it didn't work at all in people over 70 or very little. And it, it was still given, but it didn't work very well. And it, I don't think it was FDA approved, but then when the um, Shinrigs vaccine came out, it did work in older people. And I think something like that could happen with SARS-CoV-2 or COVID vaccines. We just don't know yet. Let's say vaccine is approved. What do you know about how that is likely to be distributed? A lot of people want to know, okay, the vaccine comes out, I want to take it. How quickly is all, all that going to happen? So there is this thing that you may have heard of called Operation Warp Speed, and that was uh, designed by the administration and, the, and our federal government to actually get vaccines deployed very rapidly once we get a signal that they work. Not only deployed, but manufactured and deployed very rapidly. And maybe you've heard on the news that all these companies, uh, including Moderna, Pfizer, 
Sanofi, Yant, gotten hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars in order to do. And so you basically show that it works and then you start manufacturing and, and then you actually start building plants to manufacture vaccines because you don't want to spend all that money if, you're, if your vaccine doesn't work. In this case, they're already manufacturing doses of vaccines to be ready as soon as they, the FDA says it works. Uh, and so they're sort of leapfrogging what it usually takes a lot longer. That doesn't mean that they're going to have doses for everybody available then, but they will have a lot of doses available much, much quicker. And so I think I do think that in the beginning of next year, we will be able to start vaccinating significant portions of the population. And then the question is, there, there's two problems. Um, if the mRNA vaccines are the first ones to be to show efficacy, which we hope that it will be, uh, because those are the ones that are already almost fully enrolled, fully enrolled or almost fully enrolled, those have to be stored at minus 80. And so even though they may have enough vaccine to, let's say, vaccinate 100 million Americans, uh, they, it's going to be hard for them to distribute it because there aren't right now, you know, your CVS pharmacy doesn't have uh, minus 80 storage. Um, so that's going to have to be put in. And I think they are talking about how to do that, although it certainly isn't, hasn't been implemented yet. And then the question is, okay, so you can do that. Uh, who gets vaccinated first? Um, I do think that uh, the people who are at most risk of dying with COVID would get vaccinated first. And then frontline workers would get vaccinated as well. Um, now, it depends on the results, right? If the vaccine only works in younger individuals, then it may be that nursing home residents can't get the vaccine because it doesn't work in them. If it works in everyone, I suspect that we will vaccinate nursing home residents, the elderly first. It's funny, I think we'll have to have a discussion about healthcare workers. At UAB and other major medical centers, the risk of getting infected during your everyday work in the hospital is actually relatively low now because they screen everybody that goes into the hospital. We know whether they have COVID or not within 24 hours. There's universal masking. And if they are found out to have COVID, they go to a special COVID unit where they have even extra precautions to take care of them. So if you talk to Rachel Lee and others, uh, our epi folks in the hospital, they will tell you that it's extremely rare now for somebody to get infected during patient care. Now, that is not to say that our staff aren't getting infected, but usually they're getting infected at home or when they go out and stuff. And so the question is, well, you know, do you vaccinate them? But I think there will be a case that even if they don't get, they're not exposed in the hospital per se, you need the frontline workers to be healthy. So no matter how they're getting infected, you want them to stay healthy and they will likely be the sort of the next wave of people to get vaccinated. I just have two more brief go ahead. questions. Concerns about side effects is it would be the first question. And the last question is, uh, given that neutralizing antibodies wane very quickly, what do you speculate about whether or not we're going to need to get booster shots over time? So let me ask, answer the second question first, since we've been talking about uh, immune responses. I suspect that the antibody responses are perhaps can be better than what you get in natural infection and it will last longer. But the problem is that coronavirus is notorious, not 
SARS-CoV-2 necessarily, but other seasonal coronaviruses for reinfecting people. So I suspect that we will have to get booster shots yearly, maybe every other year. That's my best bet. Um, I could be wrong, but I think that will be the case. So for side effects, each vaccine is different. They all have different backbones. Uh, so you have to take each at face value. They're all being tested in huge numbers of people because they want rapid efficacy. So we're going to have a lot of safety data, even when they find, uh, if and when they find that it, it works. However, it's still just, let's say, 30,000 people compared to the millions you're going to vaccinate. Um, and so you cannot know ex entirely that it's completely safe. I will say, though, that for the most part, most vaccines that have have uh, gone through the phase three efficacy study hurdle for safety have gone on to be very safe vaccines, but there are exceptions. Um, perhaps the most notable exception is the rotavirus vaccine that was given to kids many years ago. They did a study and they showed that it was safe and immunogenic and effective in phase three efficacy studies. They licensed the vaccine and then they found out that it caused intussusception rarely, but it definitely caused it. And so they had to scrap that vaccine and then develop another vaccine, rotavirus vaccine, that doesn't cause intussusception. And so it is possible that that could happen, but I will say that that's probably unlikely or less likely. It's not impossible, but once it reaches that first hurdle, there aren't that many uh, significant safety effects. Just to finish up, what, what is the most important thing that you hope that uh, internists understand about vaccines before they come out? Because uh, you've done a wonderful job of explaining the immunology, the, the backbones, what we're trying to do. Can we make this, synthesize this into the big picture? I think the most important thing I would like to impart is that we still have a system that actually is a very rigorous system for safety and efficacy and immunogenicity testing. And the FDA is still a very rigorous system. And if they allow something to be approved, then it's likely something that's going to work and is safe in as much as what the studies have shown so far. And so I'd like the internists then to have faith in the system and to really promote vaccination. Because remember, vaccines are not effective it's vaccination that's effective. So the vaccine itself doesn't do anything. You have to be able to vaccinate somebody for it to work. And in order for that to happen, you're gonna to have to have providers who will be able to talk to their patients to convince them that it's important to take this vaccine. Well, thank you, Paul, so much for uh, such a great uh, explanation of how vaccines work, how they're being tested, and I love your final statements about uh, the uh, belief in the FDA and our job as clinicians to try to make sure that as many people get vaccinated as possible, because the more people are vaccinated, the better off we all are. Yes, thank you. And thank you very much for having me. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. Dr. Gepford gave us a great explanation of the immune response to COVID-19 and took that uh, and explained how all of these proposed vaccines are using the same concept of trying to keep the COVID uh, virus or the SARS-CoV-2 virus from entering uh, cells. 
we discussed the uh, FDA uh, strict criteria that must be uh, met to gain approval for any of the vaccines. He pointed out that the mRNA vaccine style has had the most recruits already and should be reporting their results in the relatively near future, perhaps even before this uh, podcast uh, is released. The interesting thing that I learned is that all these vaccines are trying to produce neutralizing antibody response. Uh, that Those antibodies do wane, and he speculates that we may need booster vaccines uh, in the future. This has been a wonderful discussion for me. I, I learned a lot, and I hope this helps you better understand what is going on when the vaccine trials come out and when we have the vaccines available. Thank you for listening to Animals on Call. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.